Hi, this is Eric Arm, founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got another uh, great guest uh, coming on the show today. I've got Jose Sierra. He is the founder and CEO of Denexus. And we'll get into uh, the very interesting uh, work that they are doing. If you don't uh, know Jose, he's also a, uh, as, as we will unpack, a very interesting person with a very interesting background. But he's also a, a father and a husband and a sailor and a scuba diver, always near to, near and dear to my heart. All of you I know know I'm big time into scuba diving because it comes up all the time. He's also a pilot. Um, he definitely lives in one of the best places to be a sailor, the Bay Area where I used to live. That's amazing sailing. But he's a skier and a builder and a runner and a biker. You can see that he is an all-around uh, interesting person and uh, and has a really great professional journey as well, leading to leading to the Nexus uh, about uh, four years ago. So welcome to the show, Jose. Thank you very for having me. Let's sort of unpack uh, your story. You know, I um, I've had a few guests who were born in uh, in various parts of the world that have been on the show. We're doing you know more and more international flavor to this, and I know that your origin story. You come from. Uh, from Spain. So um, talk a little bit about, you know, where you where you're from. You know, I, I always make the joke that people doing cybersecurity work are some sort of modern day superhero and superheroes always have a backstory. So what's your what's your backstory? Yeah, perfect. So I'm originally from Spain. I was born in Barcelona, although I grew up in Madrid. Uh, and my parents moved from Madrid to Barcelona when I was only three. So I barely remember my early days in Barcelona, although I keep a bunch of family and friends there. And uh, having been born in Barcelona and growing up in Madrid gives me also an interesting perspective of my dear country, Spain, because as probably you know, they are the two main cities and there is a rivalry between the two cities, uh, especially when it comes to soccer. But that is a different conversation. Yeah, who do you root for? I mean, or you can't say that on the podcast, could get you in trouble. Uh, yeah, no, it depends on where I am, to be honest. Uh, I'm not a, I'm a big soccer fan, but I'm not a big uh, team supporter. Uh, so if I am in Madrid, I usually support Barcelona and vice versa. So that creates some uh, fun time with the friends. Yeah, I can relate to this. My my wife, in the, you know, in the United States, the, the rivalry, I suppose it's been a lot. I don't know how many decades. It's probably ancient between Ohio State University and Michigan. My wife attended both of them. And so this comes up all the time. It's like, how do you handle that? That's a long-term rivalry. And she's, you know, she's worn different jerseys at different times, you know, just depends mm -hmm. on where she's at. That happens to me. Well, let's, so let's talk about, um, you know, I always, I, well, I'm always curious, and it's so different for all of you, when, when any kind of technology influence, you know, some people say, oh, yeah, it wasn't until years later. Some people say, no, I was 10, and I was working in my dad's, uh, you know, business. So what, what was your exposure to to either technology and or, you know, work? What kind of things, you know, when, what was your first sort of work experiences? I went to college in Madrid. Uh, I'm a naval uh, engineer as education. So it's, it's been a long journey from me, from naval engineer to somehow being involved in technology. I'm not a specially technology savvy person. I've been exposed to technology working uh, and using technology in different ventures. And, uh, and uh, what brought me to cybersecurity uh, was having a significant exposure to that risk in my previous company uh, before the Nexus, where I needed to pay special attention to that uh, risk, uh, which took me out of my comfort zone uh, and above and beyond an executive. I was the CEO of the company when an executive usually needs to go to in order to find solutions to a problem that we had. And that's how everything came together for me and brought me to the technology space and to the cybersecurity space. 
so let's peel back sort of the onion layer all the way back to naval engineering. I saw that, that that was you know part of your degree work. What did you do right after that? Did, is that what you went into? So my first real job out of college was in a CPR. Uh, I went to a CPR in the southern Spain, uh, a CPR building gigantic tankers, 300 meters, so almost 1,000 feet tankers. And I soon learned that that was not my future. It was a shrinking industry, unfortunately, uh, in Spain. So I thought it was not a good idea to uh, be, to begin my uh, professional journey in something that was uh, uh, shrinking. So after a few months there, I decided, decided to completely change gears. So what happened? Uh, what, what was next? So I, I called one of my teachers in the college. I like uh, engines as a professional hobby. Uh, another different story, uh, and I called uh, one of my teachers in college who uh, taught me everything I knew at the time about big engines for big tankers, so engines big as a building. And I asked for a job, and uh, he found a job for me. And that was my second real job out of college, uh, working for a engine uh, manufacturing company, a German engine manufacturing company. Uh, I was based out, out of Spain. And actually, that is how I got involved in the energy business, because we used those engines for both uh, ships and stationary uh, services. And uh, uh, the stationary uh, power generation business was a more promising business than putting engines in uh, ships. So that's how I got involved in the, in the energy business. Well, so that that's that gets to one of my questions then. So that's the energy business. Wind power, I believe, became something you got into. That, that's a path you were... That was the second interaction on the energy business. The first was uh, burning heavy fuel in stationary gigantic power plants. Okay. Uh, and once I was into the energy business, somehow I evolved with the evolution of technologies. And at some point, uh, I was back in, in the days I was still in Spain. And at some point, Spain decided to go really big in renewable energy. And I thought that that was my opportunity to jump into something new. I always try to find the next nice opportunity to keep learning, to keep developing, and hopefully to make some business in the, along the way. So the uh, promotion in Europe in general, but in Spain in particular, of uh, renewable energy, for someone coming from the uh, energy space was the opportunity to keep doing what I was doing, but in a more promising uh, uh, space. You go back this far, this is when your entrepreneurial career starts. So you, this is where you start actually creating some of these entities. or, or, or that, is, that is correct. Uh, so, so coinciding with my evolution from, let's call traditional energy to renewable energy, I decided to leave that multinational company and began uh, my uh, entrepreneurship uh, journey. So together with one of my former bosses in my first job and uh, my mentor over time, and now my dear friend, we decided to launch a, a new uh, business to promote power generation facilities in Spain and in some places in Europe using renewable resources, uh, mostly wind, 
and at some point we evolve from wind to solar as well. Uh, so uh, again, one of my mentors, former boss, and now a dear friend of mine uh, took on the uh, adventure with me of putting a new company together to begin from scratch and build our first dream. Uh, we spent a few years in the company until we sold it to a German utility that wanted to have exposure to renewable energy and wanted to grow uh, their business uh, outside Germany, uh, in Spain. And they bought uh, a few early stage wind power generation uh, projects from us. Do we go back that far? And um, you sort of planted the seed earlier of thinking about risks. Does that sort of thought process um, as a founder and owner, is that how far back that goes? You're already, there were things you were thinking about then, and, and you know, obviously we're going to get to where it is today. You're measuring lots of very specific risks. How far back does this sort of process of thinking about them go? I've been a risk taker my entire life. I am comfortable taking risks, sometimes probably a little bit too comfortable. I've learned over time uh, to control that, uh, that way of thinking. But certainly, I've always uh, loved to embrace risks. But over time, I've learned to first understand the risk, then assess the risk, and then take on that risk. And uh, my professional uh, uh, career has always taken me uh, out of my comfort zone to the next risk, and then try to understand that new risk, uh, try to do something with it. When I reach certain point, I begin to feel too comfortable and I move on to the next one. I don't know if that has something to do with the risk quantification and management company that I have now, but you are making me think uh, along those ways. Yeah. Well, what, what would you say about those, those years, you know, before we get to, you know, where you are now and what your current sort of, I know, passion and, and focus is on, what other sort of things and where does, you know, did, did cybersecurity come up for you prior to what you're doing, you know, the last four, you know, four plus years, or is there seeds of that planted earlier? Uh, I come from the industrial space and cybersecurity was not a thing 30 plus years ago when I began yeah. my professional yeah. journey. So cybersecurity didn't come up uh, anywhere uh, in those days. Uh, cybersecurity came for me in my last uh, project prior to the Nexus, the project that brought me to the U.S. I came here in 2006, summer 2006. I landed in the Bay Area. And, oh, uh, we, moved, we moved to do the Bay Area, uh, I think, well, same year, but I think the same month, then, November, around November of 2006, and the second half yeah. of 2006, we moved yeah. to the Bay Area exact same time. I came to the Bay Area for the very first time in my life. I came to San Francisco in summer 2006 to meet a, somebody who was representing an opportunity that we ended up buying. And that was the seed of the company that we put together in the US. And uh, it was my first time in the Bay Area. And when I landed here, I said, okay, this is gonna be my place. <laughs> uh, and I came with my partner uh, at the time and he told me, but we still don't know if we are gonna buy this company or we are gonna do something totally different in the other corner of the, of the country. And I say, I don't know about you, but I'm telling you that I'm gonna stay here. And uh, so I made that, uh, that beautiful place my home. It was a two or three years project or engagement. And here we are 17 years later, I'm still in yeah. the Bay. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I did not think I would ever leave. It is a 
you know, it's a magical place uh, in many ways. I remember the first day I crossed the Golden Gate Bridge uh, northbound, and I took a bunch of pictures, as all the tourists do, as it was going to be my first time and my last time crossing the, 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 the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, I've probably crossed that thing a trillion times now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's uh, yeah, it brings back lots of memories you've been talking about it. So that project, the years of working on, I mean, that was an energy-related uh, company. That was right? another... That was another energy related project. It was also renewable energy. We built from scratch a company in the renewable power generation space, an IPP, independent power producer in the US and Canada, solar and wind. Uh, we did really, really interesting things in that company. We developed two or 3000 megawatts of, uh, of power generation facilities and built a few hundred uh, megawatts. Uh, and uh, we did really interesting things that took us uh, above and beyond the average player in that space in a few aspects. Uh, without getting too much into the weeds, uh, we developed and uh, put to work what was at the time the first power generation only balancing authority in the country, uh, control area. Uh, where you need to keep, in essence, uh, voltage and frequency under control in a certain area, and you have the responsibility to do so. That responsibility usually don't, doesn't belong to independent power producers. There are some other stakeholders in the electricity system that play that role, but we did it for a number of reasons. And uh, in order to efficiently control or, or keep reliability in our territory, because it was our responsibility to do so as a balancing authority. We deployed a bunch of technology, back to technology, and uh, technology that needed to be deployed mostly on-prem because the electricity regulator in the US doesn't appreciate putting certain things in the cloud. And uh, through that, we got way above average exposure to certain things, cybersecurity among them. Yeah. So cybersecurity for me went from being absolutely nothing to being a real problem to becoming a nightmare because we arguably had a significant cybersecurity risk in that company that we didn't understand. We didn't know what to do with it, but it was a single point of failure for our entire operations. And that company at some point, we were generating $100 million of annual revenues. And uh, cybersecurity was a risk that could take the whole thing down. So my investors, lenders, financiers, I was the CEO of the company, forced me to think seriously about that problem. And that's how technology and cybersecurity came together for me, a naval engineer building power generation renewable companies in the U.S. That's, yeah, that's, that's yeah. the same sense in that you were building new greenfields you know, that was embracing new technologies. And so there might've been people in the overall energy category that had lots and lots and lots of legacy and maybe we're slow, you know, you know, today, I think many in the category take it seriously, but there was a time period where it's like, all right, this plant works and, you know, don't touch it. You were building stuff that was using, uh, using technology right out from your, you know, the way you were designing it right out of the gate. Totally. Plus, uh, of course, dealing with legacy technologies that are so common and so reliable in the industrial space. And uh, I have 
plenty of anecdotes. One that comes to mind now was one day my team, we had operating assets in Montana, in northern Montana, close to the border with uh, Canada. And uh, my team wanted to upgrade certain systems and to patch certain systems. So they shut the whole thing down to uh, patch them. And a few hours later, I was waiting. Okay, could you please put those things back up? And they said, oh, we have a problem here with this patching. We need to try again. No, 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 no. You are going to reverse the whole thing because I need to be producing electricity. So please unfold everything you've been doing for the last several hours. I don't care about that patching thing. And I need to produce. I need to make money for my company. Uh, I'm sure that this is not the first time you hear that. Well, no, it's a natural conflict, right? Our purpose is to produce energy or make money is true for all your, or stamp out cardboard. You know, that's our primary mission. And security is certainly, there's been uh, at loggerheads, you know, obstacles of doing security, causing a disruption of the primary mission. But then of course, primary mission only, let's not do security doesn't work as you well know. And obviously our, you're, you're focused on helping people mitigate and understand their risks, but it's, it's, it's sort of a tension and I think things are getting better because there's a greater awareness of all those stakeholders who are like, okay, we, we need to find the compromises here because it can't be all one or the other. Like, no, nope, uptime production, that's all that matters. We're, you know, we're not going to look at these things because, you know, they can mean less money. Like, well, yeah, to the detriment eventually of maybe far worse outcomes than some loss of revenue because we went, you know, we had to take something down for a little bit. But there's got to be some sort of give and take and certainly empathy and understanding there. And that historically didn't exist between, you know, between various types of stakeholders, even in one energy company or one, one power plant, a lot of disagreement early on. Totally. That is exactly the case. And uh, as many other things in my life, I learned a lot of lessons the hard way. Uh, but those are the lessons that you don't forget ever again. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious of the kernels of, uh, you know, where it sounds like the seeds were planted for Denexus then. What, um, yes, what I didn't I didn't know back then that we were planting the seed, yeah. but certainly in retrospective we were planting the seed, and uh, and again because of that exposure to this novel risk that was above average, we were forced to pay above average attention to the problem. Yeah. So we were pioneers doing a few things on the cyberspace in in renewable power generation facilities. And actually, we were one of the, I think that we were the first references for one of the leading companies in the uh, in the asset detection and asset management uh, space these days, one of the pre-IPO IDS companies, uh, to avoid uh, mentioning any name. Uh, probably my, my former company is still in their website as the first uh, reference of the IDS system in the power generation space. A company that oh. is pre-IPO now, and uh, back in the days, was trying to raise, if memory serves, Series Seed or A money to keep growing their business. Yeah, oh, I, I, I'm curious. I was thinking, you know, we we will have some listeners that are senior, maybe other owners. And I know, you know, we have some that are other owners of companies or senior executives at you know at, at utilities or power companies. And I wonder your own metamorphosis from uptime production, you know, financial metrics to we've got to do cybersecurity. Whether you have any advice, if you looked back, if there's anything you would have done differently or something you did like this was the move we made, you know, to invest in cybersecurity, which is a cost center, um, you know, for the most part, for most enterprises, it's a cost. 
um, they aren't able to really pass that on to their customers uh, and make money from it. So it, it, you know, it affects the bottom line, but, you, but there's a certain portion, you know, that, that companies have to do and some companies are progressive and some are reluctant. Any advice there to people who have assets like the kinds you're describing and your, your mm -hmm. process you arrived at? Yeah. Honestly, I don't think that we did anything wrong. I don't think I would do things differently today. It was a really immature uh, space. Uh, we we needed to understand our risk. We talked to people that were skilled and specialists on the field, and they told us hey, the first thing you need to understand is the assets you have. So so you need to gain visibility about your assets. Okay, how can we do that? There is this new technology, IDS. What I yeah. when I'm going to tell you about IDS. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, so we, we again we deployed uh, one of the uh, early solutions. This was ten plus years ago. Uh, we deployed one of the solutions, and actually we gained a lot of visibility about our assets. So, so that was an important first step. And at the same time, was another aha moment. And for me, as an executive, saying, "Okay, now I see my assets. What do I do with that information? How do I translate that information into business data?" that I can use to make good business decisions for my company. And there was a gigantic gap. There was a gigantic gap. And we didn't know how to translate that data about our assets, our vulnerabilities, controls in place, etc., into business data that we could act uh, on. This is, I always say, this is a low probability, high impact type of risk, especially in these industrial facilities. Uh, which represents that type of risk that you usually don't want to keep in your balance sheet and you try to offload, selling part of the risk to entities in the business of buying it, the, the, the insurers or the insurance industry at a scale. But they didn't understand that risk either. So it was a complex uh, conversation uh, trying to trade something, uh, cyber risk, between two stakeholders that had no idea what they were trading but at the same time, we're trying to price it and uh, cover it. Uh, so it was the first step in a long journey. And here we are, 10, 12 uh, years later, still trying to understand that risk. Now, from the other side of the table, and trying to develop the tool that I wished I had available to me back in my days, and try to help the owners of the risk, who now sit on the other side of the table from where I sit, trying to help them to understand the risk and to make good business decisions based on that better understanding of the risk. You were you, your current customer. I was my current customer. So <laughs> I think I understand the pain and I think yeah. I understand their needs. I, I was my, my one of my current customers, yes. So what's the founding of, of the Nexus? You know, as an entrepreneur, I'm always, I'm always curious, but that spark, that moment, or series of moments that leads to, you know, a new a new company. What was that? Yeah, the first step is that that company that I'm referring to uh, was acquired by a large financial institution. And that was the beginning of a, a transformation of the company, the beginning of the end of my project as individual. And uh, two years after that, that acquisition, I exited that, uh, that, uh, that project. It gave me time to think about what I wanted to do next. It was an orderly and lengthy transition. 
After that, I still spent a year uh, exploring some other opportunities before I decided to launch uh, the Nexus. So I'm curious, uh, were any of them still in renewables or you know energy production? Were they in that side? Did you have? Did you think of doing more? You've done so many, you know, so many years in that side of the house. I'm curious what led you to do to do Genexus, which is a very different approach. It's still in the same yeah. ecosystem, but it's a very different business. A totally different business. So uh, a number of factors that at some point come together uh, and uh, it becomes that aha moment again. So uh, one, I'm living in the Bay Area. Third or fourth time it comes up during the conversation. Everybody does technology here. And I was the weird guy doing energy. So that was that was hung somewhere at the back of my head. Uh, second, evidently, technology scales and technology enables scalable businesses. So it was a compelling uh, idea to build something that can scale relatively easily and something that is as flexible as a business around uh, technology. And uh, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, uh, when I get comfortable with something, I need a new uh, thing to take me out of my comfort zone. And this was an opportunity to get really out of my comfort zone and, uh, and uh, build something new from scratch and take advantage of the opportunity to learn a lot from really clever people in the technology space, really clever people in the cybersecurity space, and try to put all of those things together on something that is meaningful for me, for my, for my investors, for my partners, and for my customers. That was it. And evidently, uh, also the business uh, layer, uh, something that I thought was a terrific business opportunity if I was able to put the pieces together. Uh, so it was a combination of all of that, trying to do something different, trying to do something that potentially can be value, valuable and, and get a piece of that, obviously. But at the same time, something that takes me out of my comfort zone again and helps me to keep growing as a person. Yeah. Tell me, what, why don't we just tell the listeners a little bit about what the Nexus is doing? So at the Nexus, we have developed a, a technology-based product that is data and data analytics uh, that we use to quantify cyber risk in financial terms for uh, industrial environments, for uh, industrial corporates, which is somehow my background. And uh, we do that with technology and our product is all about data and data analytics. Our specialty again is industrial cyber risk. And we have a customized solution to measure uh, cyber risk exposure in industrial environments based on collecting tons of data from inside the facilities and from outside the facilities that we put together to try to identify the threats, vulnerabilities, controls, and how all of that correlates with each other and uh, how all of that results on probability of successful attacks and then calculate the financial impact of those attacks. So it's really uh, the metrics, metrics and, and um, uh, actionable metrics to what could arguably be, you know, a dartboard scenario in the dark, right? Like, oh, should we you know, mitigate this risk and mitigate that one? 
We can't do it all. No, no enterprise can. There's not unlimited budgets. There's not certainly enough people. So being very surgical about what we're going to mitigate, that's what you're enabling. That is correct. Uh, with a good understanding of the risk based on that data, you yeah. have easier decisions to make about, hey, am I comfortable with the risk now that I understand the risk? So then I don't need to do anything. Usually you don't get to that comfort level, so you need to do something. And we help to make uh, good business decisions. Do this and don't do that because this has a better value for your investment rather than that. Or actually don't overdo because after spending this much money, there is no return on the investment. And contrary to what, what most of the people think, companies, corporations don't hate risk. They love risk. What they shouldn't love is the risk that they don't understand. So it's the art of balancing the risk-reward equation. And we help them to play, let's say, in that limit, uh, understanding the risk that you have and, uh, and uh, getting comfortable with that risk level by either accepting it or reducing it, but making a good use of risk management dollars. This, you know, there's so many things uh, that come to mind, but one is your opinion on insurance. You know, we we get a lot of questions and we had some sessions where it's been discussed. In fact, I think one with some of your team not, not that long ago, and it gets, you know, it comes up and people say, you know, you can lay off risk with insurance products, but you can't lay off in the industrial environment loss of life or, you know, some risks you can insure against some of the financial impact of them, but you can't undo real world physical damage. And so, you know, what, what is the role of, of insurance in the control system, the physical cyber to physical space? And what's your viewpoints on that industry, which is not real clear yet on there's lots of different sort of inconsistencies and there's certainly a lot of stress around how to get underwritten and whether someone can and what's covered and what's not. So uh, a lot to unpack in that question. So first, yeah. what, is, what is the role that that industry plays? Let me answer a different question. What is the role that that industry should play? Uh, as we said before, this is a low probability, high impact type of risk. That is what the insurance industry is there for. They are in the business of uh, buying the risk uh, and they are in the business of protecting these critical infrastructures by uh, socializing the risk, which is what the insurance industry does. How much are they buying the risk? Only testimonial these days. Uh, only testimonial is, is an industry that needs to develop and can't develop if there is no good data that help them to uh, develop proper products and to build the financial capacity that is necessary to buy this arguably gigantic risk. So that, that represents another business opportunity. Uh, the state of the art. premium for a high probability risk, right? Not understanding what the risk was, it's got a high likelihood and not charging the appropriate premium for it. Uh, it today, honestly, is a guesswork. They are trying and failing, they are guessing, they are learning, as everybody yeah. else is learning about this. And, uh, and I feel that the, that the learning pace is accelerating thanks to people like us and thanks to their efforts also to understand the risk and to bring the data that helps everybody understand the risk. Yeah. So I feel that that industry is on cyber risk or cyber insurance is unmature, but they know it. They have appetite for the risk for the most part. Uh, sometimes they don't say it, 
but they do have appetite. And this represents a tremendous business opportunity for them as well. So my personal opinion is that they play and will play a critical role on the management of the risk, especially for these large industrial companies and these large critical infrastructures where the owner of the infrastructure cannot afford the risk and uh, the society as a whole is bearing the risk. If PG&E here in the Bay Area goes down, all of us are going to have a really hard time. So that is a risk that all of us need to manage and socialize uh, together. And the insurance industry plays a critical role on that, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. As a, you know, sort of switching gears a little bit, as a long-term entrepreneur uh, with a high degree of success, but new entrepreneur to this, you know, to the cybersecurity segment specifically, any advice for the other um, entrepreneurs and CEOs that are in our that are in our ecosystem selling cybersecurity to the OT space? I can think of when I entered it 12 years ago, I, I would have said. If I knew that, I would have said, "Beware, be careful, be ready for long sales cycles." You know, any advice from your your years? You know, uh, you have? as I said before, I keep learning the hard way, so I can share a bunch of mistakes that I've made with the hope that others don't make them. So, one is developing technology is extremely difficult and costly. Again, it was my first. It is my first technology-based project. I spent a year before I felt ready. And I had a lot of conversations with people in the technology space. And all of them told me the same, hey, you do your estimate, you multiply that times 10, and you are gonna be short. <laughs> and they were wrong. It's, you do your estimate, you multiply times 100, and then you are still wrong. So developing technology is expensive, is costly. Second, in our industrial space, sales cycles are endless. Uh, it takes uh, forever. Actually, I think that our technology can help us and others to make those cycles a little bit shorter because for the very first time, we are still learning, but for the very first time, we offer a tool that allows not only us, but others to prove the value of their technologies. Hey, if you invest this much, you are going to reduce the risk this much. And that can be measured in financial terms. So you get this return in your investment. So you should make this investment not only because it's prudent from the uh, cyber security standpoint, but because it's a financially good investment or financial good investment for your company. Uh, but uh, cycles are still uh, lengthy. And uh, financing all of that in a new venture with venture capital is another interesting uh, uh, it's another interesting uh, journey and uh, we are four years old we launched the company in 2019 so we've gone through the last four years worth of cycles including COVID including now the uh, fluid situation in the macro uh, economy and uh, certainly venture capital is an interesting uh, capital and uh, combining the difficulty of uh, building something technology based on something as complex as industrial cyber, uh, long sales cycles and, uh, and uh, not easy access to capital makes this an interesting uh, journey, but we are enjoying every minute. We, we could definitely share some stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I hear you say that, uh, you know, it just, that was uh, many of those things were certainly it's something I was, you know, part of uh, in 2011 through, you know, through 18 was characterized by a lot of those same 
you know, same descriptors. So yeah, I, I, I get, well, I get what you're sharing there. Yeah. But it seems to me, you know, now measuring 11, 12, well, I guess 13 years of looking at this control system, cybersecurity space, it's getting, it's getting, like you said, it's getting really interesting. And, and uh, there's every sort of indicator that I look at progress is being made. It's, you know, we're certainly not, it's not backtracking. It's we're, we're, we're moving forward, maybe not as fast as uh, some of us would like at various stages and viewpoints, but there is progress being made and there is maturity coming on and uh, in lots of different sectors or subsectors. And it's, it's exciting. Uh, like we, like we can accomplish something, you know, I, I'm an optimist at heart. So I look at things that are being accomplished. There's people who are like, Oh, we're not far enough along, you know, and, and are, you know, more pessimistic in their view as to where we need to be. But it just seems like, more people are working better together, even inside same companies. People who were not working together, there's progress being made in trusting each other and working together. And that seems, in my opinion, that's one of the one of the keys to, to moving forward. Yeah, I, I'm totally of the view that we are, as an industry, we are moving in the right direction. Uh, I think that we need to keep evolving from looking at this as a pure technical problem to looking at this as a business problem. And uh, of course, we talk about cyber risk. Uh, we use risk language. Uh, and uh, another evolution that I think we need to consolidate is we need to allocate the relevance. How can I say this? I, I mentioned before that companies love risk, but they should love only the risk that they understand. Certainly, cyber risk is one of the risks in the pool of risks. Uh, those of us in the cyber industry tend to think that cyber risk is the most relevant risk on earth, and that may or may not be the case. That may or may not be the case. So we need to learn to speak business language. I think that the most relevant business language when it comes to cybersecurity is cyber risk in financial terms. That's why we are doing what we are doing. But we also need to learn to contextualize that risk with many other risks that our customers are facing these days and sometimes accept that our risk may not be the first in their to-do list. Yeah. Yeah, I had a guest on the show recently talking about, you know, his significant experience with hurricanes and uh, to the power, you know, power companies that exposure that he had over the years. He's like, we had a lot more damage done there, he's, but he's totally an expert in cybersecurity and very, very concerned with mitigating that risk. But he has the overall context of how much damage is done by other risks. Correct. Yeah. But certainly we are collectively, uh, we are uh, pointing the ship in the right direction. In my opinion, we are becoming more relevant. Evidently, cyber risk is in the front page of all the news uh, these days, sometimes for the right, sometimes for the wrong reason but certainly on the front page. And that is giving us, as an industry, the relevance that probably we deserve and that makes our activity uh, relevant for our customers. And uh, the ecosystem keeps growing, keeps maturing. Uh, we are working with a lot of partners, bouncing ideas around or sharing technologies because the risk is complex. The problem that we are trying to solve is complex. Nobody can solve it entirely so we need to support each other and help each other and i feel that and we are still in a small uh, ecosystem which probably makes easier to develop a strong relationships with uh, within the industrial cybersecurity community you mentioned dale peterson he puts this amazing show together that happened a couple of weeks ago i don't know 
1,400 people. Uh, yeah, is, it was the biggest ever. Yeah, S4 uh, 23. Yeah. I was I was there. It was great, and it was uh, so, yeah, it's a significant gathering for our for our industry for sure. Correct. So 13 people, 1,300 people compared to 50 or 100 back in the days is yeah. big growth, but it's still in a small space uh, right. uh, compared to others. Yeah, yeah, that's all all true. So as we sort of wrap up, what are you, you know, if you're looking ahead, what are you excited about? Maybe it pertains to what we're talking about, or maybe it's something else, but just sort of the future. What does the future bring? You know, I, I was sort of interested in people looking around the curve. What do you see and what, what excites you? Or does it? If you see something that doesn't excite you, you know, what's that? If you mean on the business, on the cyberspace, I think that we collectively are reaching that tipping point uh, of becoming a mature uh, industry probably is going to be slowed down by the macro trends that are going to make 2023 and maybe 2024 complex years for everyone but for us in this industry but i i really feel that we are collectively reaching that tipping point as becoming a mature uh, industry as a whole a mature uh, value proposition that delivers mature value to our customers so i'm, I'm really Bullish. And in our particular case, uh, the Nexus, again, we feel that the cyber insurance industry will play a really meaningful role. And certainly 2023 will be a tipping point in that regard for the better. Uh, there has been significant uh, recent transactions in this space as early as uh, January 2023 that are a proxy of what is to come. Uh, I think that we will look a few years down the road, we will look at 22, 23, 24 as the years where cyber insurance went from the pure guesswork and low volumes to a meaningful uh, asset class in large volumes. I think that 23 is going to be a critical year in that regard. I'm really awesome. bullish about, about that. Thank you for sharing that because that's, that's a unique insight that you obviously have a lot of perspective on so that's uh that's a nice share thank you for spending the time um uh, with me and with with our audience um i think people will find this interesting everybody on the show has come from so many different backgrounds and i love that yours as you say was not cybersecurity at all uh for, for many many years but it was it was it did i think give you you know the more you sort of described it it gave you unique perspective to um, the end user the, the people who need to buy these products the people that need to be insured and all those sorts of things and i think I'm a real fan of the, 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 how we'll solve this. Kind of like you said, it'll take all of us to solve this problem. And, and so we got to bring all these different viewpoints. You know, you brought a different uh, a viewpoint to your uh, to your startup and now now very interesting company that's doing interesting work. So um, I'm I'm sort of a, a fan of what you guys are doing and and uh, appreciate uh, appreciate the uh, you know the investment of time, energy, and capital that's gone into getting where you are today. Derek, thank you very much for hosting me. It's been it's been really nice to share my uh, personal journey and to remember a few things that probably I had forgotten along the way. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're ready, um, I like to end the show with what I uh, with, with something called the Pivot Questionnaire. Um, I'm borrowing it from a show called Inside the Actor Studio, and he borrowed it from a French show before that. I, it could be 50 years old for all I know. Because I know that uh, James Lipton, the the longtime host of Inside the Actor Studio, he used it with famous actors and actresses, all the greats, for many, many, many years. He ended his interview show 
uh, with the same 10 questions that he'd borrowed from the French show. So I have not changed a word of it. And uh, if you're up for it, I'll ask you the same 10 questions. Let's go. All right. What is your favorite word? Adventure. What is your least favorite word? Uh, death. What turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Getting out of my comfort zone. What turns you off? Uh, laziness or uh, no ambition. What is your favorite curse word? The polite one is sh should. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, any nature sounds, uh, the sound of wind, the sound of uh, the sea, uh, raining, any nature type of sound. What sound or noise do you hate? Ah, total uh, lack of sound. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? A real profession or any profession? Whatever you like. Sailor. What profession would you not like to do? Something that sits me behind a desk all day long. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Do this something good for the world. I'm just wrapping up with Jose Sierra, the founder and CEO of the Nexus, and uh, just a fascinating, fun uh, interview. I'm envious of where he lives. I lived there for eight years, and it's still near and dear to my heart, the Bay, the Bay Area, where amazing sailing and adventure can be had every every moment of every day if one wants right outside your doorstep uh hey thank you so much for coming to the show and uh and for uh for what you're doing in the industry thank you so much for having me and uh look, looking forward to seeing you in the bay i can't wait to get back take care be well bye Jose.